Larry, I'll give you a cue here. MM&M Agency 100 Studio Sessions. Real chemistry. Okay, we're rolling. Hello, my name is Larry Dobrow. I'm the editor-in-chief of MM&M, and I am ready for you to plug into this episode of the Agency 100 Studio Sessions, a new podcast series which gives members of the MM&M Agency 100 an opportunity to riff on what sets them apart. I'm here today with Frank Mazzola, who's the Chief Creative Officer of Real Chemistry, and Ari Srinivasan, who is the Group EVP of Data and AI Solutions. Frank and Ari, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. Today's podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, AI and ideas, and I think Real Chemistry is one of the agencies, you know, we've been covering Real Chemistry's growth over the years. I think it's one of the few agencies that really understands this, that gets this right. So most of my questions will be along those lines. And um, it's interesting, you know, when the title of AI and Ideas came together, it struck me as like, you know, many people might not think of the two of them together in context. So tell me about the connection and how Real Chemistry views that connection, how Real Chemistry applies both of them. I think it comes from looking at a very complicated industry and saying, if you were to boil it down to the two simplest things that are going to really change it and move it forward, it really always comes down to ideas and AI and beyond, you know, the AI that we're talking about now, but the AI that's always been part of what, what real chemistry has built over the years. Um, but even to back up from there, you kind of start with the, the, the problem and there's 8 billion of us in the world. One day we're all going to need or interact with the healthcare system in one way or another. It's the thing that we all share. And at that point, it's going to be either a good interaction or a bad interaction. So is it going to be complicated, overwhelming? Is it going to be cold, like people say it is sometimes? Um, or is it going to be like other things that we interact with and be intuitive, personable, and interesting as we would hope it would be? So when we look at those two things, um, we think about the experience that it it creates. So obviously... A lot comes from the idea end of it, but uh, the intuitiveness, how personable it feels, how, how well you know your audience, a lot of that comes from AI and, and being able to, to understand things beyond what a human can understand just ourselves with, with manpower, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Ari, your take on the same question. I think in addition to what Frank was saying, right, let's go back to the fundamental definition of what AI is. AI is essentially trying to do things with a kind of human intelligence, essentially, something a machine doing it with a human intelligence. So I think there is obvious, just like how you are cautious with uh, any human-to-human interaction, and you have obviously set and unset rules, I think if you treat AI as uh, the Chewbacca to the Han Solo in something... (laughs) And work through with it, I think you can put it to amazing use. The kind of parsing, synthesizing, analyzing that can be done at scale with AI far supersedes anything a human can do. Uh, Even if you are the one who's feeding the system, it possibly can do a a calculation or a synthesis faster than what you can as being the creator of that input. So I'm I'm saying the future is, is going to be literally inseparable. It's already, we are seeing this in many different ways in our lives currently. 
So embracing it and, and doing it in a, in a right way is possibly the focus where we should be. So to me, AI and ideas start becoming literally the two side of a coin or something that thrives off of each other if done right. So that ends, um, to follow up on that answer, Ari, you know, when Real Chemistry has some of these conversations with clients or prospective clients, um, is there a sort of clarity about what you've just said? Do they understand how AI can be applied or is it still a little bit of a buzzword for some organizations? I think rightfully so. Everybody's taking it with a measure of caution, right? Uh, and depending on where you are, uh, for example, uh, let me let me take a real life example, right? We work with clients who work uh, with extremely rare diseases. By classification, we call things like orphan drugs and stuff like that because there is no precedence of having treated that particular condition, a disease or a disorder. Now, what this means is it's unknown territory for a lot of people. So in that sense, there is much more receptivity to see if a particular solution that we offer, whether it's using of data, large-scale, real-world data, clinical or otherwise, and if we are able to find them a right set of patients or a patient cohorts who can be mapped to a therapy that is being uh, that is being discovered, I think it's a phenomenal use of how ideas converge using AI, right? So in that sense, I think there is extreme amount of receptivity and we are seeing the industry moving towards using this as another avenue, which is going to help them treat a disease or a disorder. And from even, you know, the ideas perspective of that, a lot of the way that we've been thinking of AI for the last couple of years are as a creative or somebody that needs to come up with ideas can be any, any department or discipline. The more you understand about your audience down to one audience is going to have a lot of different segments. So you could be at a company, they're going to be at different, you know, they're going to be likes and interests in all of these different places that we, we go, even when we're a group. And as a creative person, if you know enough about that audience, what they're into, where they go, what they like, what their barriers are, their fears, all of those things, you're going to be able to create something that's much more relevant for them. And we're going to be able to get it to them in the best possible place because we know where they are. I like the idea that you connect it to the creative process because I think that's been one of the disconnects. And again, I think the scenario where real real chemistry excels is connecting the two of them. There's a technological slash analytical aspect of it and there's a creative aspect of it. How are we seeing these two unite in the personalization of marketing? Well, I think, you know, we see personalization in so many different industries and obviously there are certain, certain barriers in health of how personal that you can get. You know, it kind of goes back to how well you know your audience. Ron from our company once said, you can understand a person and their health better from their credit card statements, metaphorically, <laughs> than their EHR, which is super interesting because you realize that people are are really dimensional. And the more that you understand all aspects of them, and some of that is what they're opting in, into, what they want you to understand. There's a, a value exchange. If I give you this information about me, I expect that the information that I get back is going to be more valuable. Then the two things start connecting because you want to have more of a one-on-one conversation these days than a really broad conversation. That's just the way that the, the world has changed in terms of how we take in information. If you say, hey, Frank, and you know, if I go onto Hulu and it welcomes <laughs> me back and it says, hey, Frank, welcome back. There's an interesting feeling of that, of the content that's on Hulu. They understand they're going to serve me up the right things that I'm interested in. And it's it's not a lot different with with advertising. You want to feel like it's speaking to you and you're not just another person kind of seeing this massive thing that's going out to everybody. 
So I think that always helps the personalization aspect of it. And uh, to expand on that, right, Larry, personalization can be expanded to not just an individual, uh, and it may sound contradicting, but even to a larger patient set or a cohort. What I mean by that is uh, when COVID came and hit, obviously what happened is they realized that if you truly monitor and find out that people are talking about their disease state along with an underlying illness or something else that they had, a diabetes or a hypertension, et cetera, with a large amount of data set, you can come to a conclusion that people who have specific conditions are impacted stronger and harsher by something like COVID, which means the next set of advertising you would see biopharma companies and companies which do COVID therapies, they started targeting people who are high risk in segment and saying that, hey, you may it may serve you well if you start taking this particular therapy so that it prevents you and gives you a protective uh, layer, right? So to me, I think personalization and marketing expands to, uh, as Frank was mentioning, to individual patients and also to larger cohorts. And if you look at it from a public eye, it can even sort out problems in public health for a larger set of people. When you have these conversations with clients, um, you know, for lack of a more elegant way to put it, do they get it? Is there an open-mindedness towards some of the things which both of you have just said? As I mentioned, I think there is an increased awareness that there is a need for us to start looking at, uh, at various different dimensions and it has to mirror the real life. For example, any drug you take, whether it's for hypertension or for whether it is for in oncology, in, in, in areas like oncology where real chemistry is extremely strong at, the patients who are going to be treated in a real life are made of different racial sets, right? Now, on the contrary, the clinical trials have traditionally been driven by a specific set of racial profiles for ease of access and things. So it didn't truly reflect how the diversity in public life is in a real world scenario. Now, clients realize that this is actually a problem because in the real setting, the drug works differently because of the diverse set of uh, racial profiles. So they've started now saying, let's go back to the clinical trials and correct the bias there, which they realize things like our, our data set, what we do, we have, we have been working with two or three clients where most recently, where we are trying to offer them saying, here are particular hospitals or physicians who do uh, have a better diversity in terms of the patient profiles that they cater to. And they are a better investigator for your product than how you've been traditionally doing, right? So that has had a phenomenal uptake in terms of how they do. And now most of them are meeting their diversity goals and it's become part of how they conduct clinical trials, which reflects real life. So to your question, it's a longish way of saying there is appetite to exploring areas where uh, this helps in terms of how it reflects real life is going to be, how it's going to position where the product is going to be eventually used and also helps them uh, create the right narrative and messaging across a diverse set of patient uh, cohorts. Yeah, these are all things that clients want, but it's a confusing, it can be a confusing area. So most clients, even even words like omnichannel and these different, you know, even some of the terminology that, that Ari just used, sometimes you don't want to ask the question and dig deeper and try to understand it because you feel like it's something that you should already know. So I think yeah. with clients... We try our best to put things in in layman's terms, make sure they're comfortable with it because the benefit of it they want, but the understanding it, you know, if you're uncomfortable about something, you may be like, mm, maybe that's not for me. So there's usually kind of that in between step of making sure that 
they really understand it and never feel, you know, nobody wants to feel stupid, which we all do a little bit with some of this, you know, as things get more and more technical and things are changing by the, the day, the week and the month. So a lot of it's just making people feel comfortable. Um, I'd like to follow up on something you said, Ari. Um, it was about issues around bias. With AI, there is concern about its application. In terms of bias, in terms of oversight and security, um, how do you assuage some of those concerns that uh, people that are not entirely familiar with what this can do might have? So uh, it's a very valid question, right, Larry? I think usually what happens is AI, one of the fundamental aspects is the kind of data that you feed, which leads to some level of bias. Second is in terms of, hey, how do you allow a model to function an output and use what is coming out of it without verifying it, right? So what we do from our side is essentially do this feedback loop mechanism, right? So we do the usual things like in terms of picking random samples of data and doing a testing, whether it's stand scrutiny. We also do parallel models in terms of constructing two different, three different scenarios for a particular use case and seeing if the output reflects the true world outcome, right? And how do we decide that? It's a combination of two things, right? One is we have people who have been, for want of a better word, healthcare natives, people who have literally been in healthcare throughout their entire career, whether it's five years or 25 years, we have people who have lived in healthcare, right? So now those people are the subject matter experts who vet and validate whether a model throw, throws out or outputs the right kind of uh, right kind of output or an indicator which is reflective of real world. Second is we work very closely with our customers. We are literally like an extension of uh, these pharma companies, biotechs, or whomever we call it. And they help us validate saying that, hey, if we are finding, if we are saying there is a specific disease state for which we are able to find patient sets out here, they check, validate, and come back to us saying that, hey, this model has worked. It's been possibly 60% more effective, 50% more effective than what we were doing traditionally. That has led to us go back and train the models that we have and feed the data set that we have and cleanse it and steward it so that we minimize the kind of bias uh, and the output that it provides. And this is a continuous process, Larry, as you can imagine, right? There's always going to be constant oversights required. There is some level of intervention that is needed. And just like, as I said, we need to treat AI's output as a partner to what we do. So if we go, let it go all on its own, it's going to obviously enhance the kind of concerns and accentuate the topics of bias, et cetera. But as long as there is a good synchrony that we establish in terms of how we do this, uh, that's going to be essentially be more effective than how it's done traditionally. All right. Frank, switching gears a tiny bit here. Um, this is a theory which I know you've shared before, but uh, Brussels sprouts, AI, marketing, and advertising. Yeah. Tell us your theory here. Yeah, no, it's just kind of a, a story, I guess, you know, an analogy. So 2008, as, as soon as 2008, Brussels sprouts were uh, the number one most hated vegetable in America, based on a survey. <laughs> and, you know, depending on when you grew up and when I grew up, I would have them about once a week, once every two weeks, hated them. Brussels sprouts um, night, never, never a good night. Yeah, they were super healthy. Parents would tell you that they're really vitamin rich and <laughs> sort of shut up and, and eat them. Eat. Um, and it, it kind of felt like this big middle finger from the people of Brussels saying, hey, we made this. <laughs> you have to eat it. But it wasn't really it wasn't really their fault. It was, you know, it was the chefs, our parents who were who were cooking it. There was one recipe 
And that was, you know, boil some water, throw some Brussels sprouts in, serve them to people you once claimed to, to love. Uh, <laughs> they're going to be soggy. They're going to be bitter and, and they're going to be gross. And then as time passes by, nobody asks for this change to happen, but there's kind of a motivated few that says, you know, we want to look at this thing that everybody hates and turn it into something that people really, really love. So, you know, they cultivate different varieties. They take the bitterness out. You're roasting them instead of, of boiling them. And it goes from this really unappetizing thing to something that you can, you can go to a wedding, it'll be wrapped in bacon, and now it's an appetizer and people are clamoring for it. And I think it's just a theory on the way that that healthcare is perceived from a, from a communication standpoint is you start from this place where people have, you know, feelings about it. You see it so much on TV. It's the main thing that's on broadcast. It's the laundry list, the side effects and all of that. And we're in this position where there's a usefulness to what we're doing and you want people to lean in and understand their health and be educated and be actually interested in it enough to, to interact with it in the right way. And that's kind of where we see that change that's happening in, in the industry is that there's a motivated few. It's not only us. It's a lot of people who are saying this can be better. It could be more useful. People should love what we're doing. They shouldn't feel like we're barraging them with, you know, advertising trash. One more company sending me things or, or popping up in front of my face. It should really feel as useful, more useful than what we see in consumer. And just even to follow up on that point, I think it's, we look at under other industries and we say, all right, well, that's Doritos. They should be really creative. They should really do that, that thing that's going to be kind of on the edge and really get me to lean in. We're health. We need to be conservative and know our place or whatever that is. Um, but if you think about that, you know, Doritos doesn't do something interesting. Maybe somebody doesn't buy a new flavor. No big deal. Obviously, the company wouldn't love that, but... They'll get over it. Yeah. In health, you miss this message. You don't get people interested enough. Somebody's missing something really important, and that important thing is going to be about their health. So the whole Brussels sprouts analogy, all of this is to sort of say creativity, ideas, AI, putting those things together is more important in health than in any other industry. And that's one of the things we're really trying to move forward to make people feel like this is really useful. I'm happy that you that you hooked me in. That's kind of the analogy for it. To that end, um, what are some of the other kind of pairings of creativity, tools, technology that Real Chemistry is developing to help improve healthcare, you know, writ large? I mean, a lot of the work that we do is based on, on something we call real audiences, uh, which is really segmenting the audience and helping us really, really understand them on a, on a deeper level. We've done a lot of work in that space that really pushes the boundaries of what you would normally see in, in health because it really lines up with what the audience is into. So even down to, you know, Generation Z, they're into really interesting, weird things that maybe older generation wouldn't even see that as funny or be like, that doesn't really seem like a healthcare ad. But when you look at that versus the data and everything that you know about that audience, then that idea makes a lot of sense. So instead of like replicating what, what healthcare has done over and over again, you're looking at what you know about these groups and you're creating something that's gonna feel really, really relevant to them. So real audiences is, is one of those things that's once you see it in action as a creative, you're, you kind of can't live without it. 
you're always asking about it. Ari, from where you're sitting, what are some of the other areas where real chemistry provides things that, you know, frankly, a lot of others don't? Right. So our uh, IPM, which is our data and analytics uh, area, our integrated intelligence or I-squared that we call it, does does social and behavioral uh, sort of research and uh, analysis, along with our uh, Swoop on TI Health acquisition, which we recently did. So what, I mean, these are different names, right? So I don't want to overwhelm the number of names, but I'm saying what we focus on is uh, the, the trifecta at the minimum, right? Which is essentially patients, physicians, and pharma companies. So we have solutions for one, from a patient standpoint, we help them get the right therapy in terms of getting the right treatment for mapping the right patient to the right treatment, right? Right from the time of clinical trials. From a physician standpoint, what we offer is for them to be able to reach the right set of patients and do the right level of intervention, including eventually moving over to the personalized medicine track, right? And from a pharma company, what is super important is then they have a product in their hands, which is like the next best thing uh, to solve a problem or to solve a disease state or a disorder. I think it is super important that they actually find out the right key opinion leaders, the influencers on one side, and also reach the larger physician set. And they also help those physician set get literally the right messaging, right context, et cetera, and get enabled to take the therapy across to the patient set. So we bring all these three disparate pieces together and we do that through a combination of data and AI and obviously our creative side of things. So right from messaging, communication, all powered through data and AI is, I would say, the secret sauce of and possibly I'm oversimplifying what we do, right? Okay. Um, to that end, you know, obviously Real Chemistry has developed many things that have helped patients. Um, can you give me one or two examples on something that Real Chemistry has done to help a client provide those better outcomes that, you know, all of us are in this business to find? So to, to me, uh, what motivates, uh, I'll tell you from a data and AI analytics team standpoint, right? It is finding, and our secret is originally started with rare diseases. And I think we are still the strongest in that segment. We have actually spanned across to broader disease states. There are conditions where uh, across, the, uh, across the US, you would have a few thousand patients. Many of them are undiagnosed or underdiagnosed. Now, what we do is, through the data that we have and the AI models that we have built over the years, we are in a position to take those patients who have those conditions and get them mapped to therapies which are coming maybe a year from now or two years from now. I think that is the biggest uh, advantage that we offer. Now think about it, right? I, I don't want us to be seen as just a niche provider. If we can do that, we can actually do this for any larger disorder or a disease state. You know, we can do that for diabetes. We can do this for we are doing this for a lot of uh, different oncology treatments which are there. But I'm saying the biggest uh, uh, biggest sort of uh, excitement that you have is when you find that the company which is making the drug is not able to find patients. It's not able to find the physicians who treat those patients. We are helping connect those patients to those physicians and then to the therapy, which is the most important thing we all exist for, making a difference in the life of one patient uh, one day at least, right, in their quality of life. So that, Larry, is how I would say we are making a difference. Frank, uh, the same question, but from your um, slightly different perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all it's all connected. Everything that Ari says really, you know, is the input into into a lot of the creative and the fact that you're going to be able to reach the right people is always important. I think there was one case where um, it was uh, it was an example in hemophilia where we had 
um, the brand was doing well. Everything that we were doing was was performing, but we realized that we were only really reaching 20% of the audience. Like 20% was really engaged in the usual places in health. And there was a whole 80% that we had to somehow reach on different channels. Um, and everything that Ari is, is talking about helped us take kind of a hypothesis, look at it against the data, realize that there was truth there, give us more information. And then we ended up doing events on on things like Twitch. It was, you have a younger male audience. It was a pretty homogenous group. It was mostly male. It was young adult. And we realized they were gamers. So we started doing a lot with gaming because we had that information and we knew one of the places that they would be as an interested audience would be in that in that type of medium versus TV or streaming, you know, other, you know, traditional streaming and stuff like that. So that's one like general example, I would say. All right. Um, one last question for you both. Um, the ongoing connection that real chemistry has forged with AI and ideas. We're speaking again about this five years from now. Um, what do you hope to be telling me? What do you expect to be telling me? I mean, certainly the future changes uh, more quickly in the post-pandemic era than it did previously, right? Um, what are you guys both looking out for? Uh, see, uh, I, I think uh, there's a lot of excitement about things like generative AI, right? Uh, which is being spoken about, uh, chat GPT and the likes. So I think each of this is going to become something like we were discussing recently with one of our partners. There's going to become like a like a vertical in which people are going to build out solutions. So I think our biggest excitement is with the data that we have and the kind of models that we have built, which is extremely rich and getting enriched every day. We are excited in incorporating these new technologies and concepts and essentially trying to reach the drug to the patient that it is underserved, uh, mapping the physician to the patient, and possibly ensuring that uh, we have the right messaging, uh, right kind of early diagnosis through to therapy and management of a disease state or a disorder. So to me, the, the possibilities are possibly just starting, Larry. And I think as we move through, uh, there'll, be a, there'll be a much more distilled version, which I think literally two or three years from now, 70 to 80% of patients are going to be having a tailored personalized therapy, right? Wow. And we are going to in that direction. Uh, so that's going to happen. And we are glad that we are at the forefront of it, driven by uh, the data and AI that we work with. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one more huge change where you know things are going to be de- very different in five years. You'll be able to predict some of it, and some of it will be not a complete surprise, but it'll it'll kind of change as you go along. So think back to the early 2000s when we were talking about digital. Um, and that took a little while for the industry to wrap its head around because they're so used to, to print and all of those things that have been decades of yeah, the standbys way standbys. And then you get it and then it changes and it changes everything. And, and what we do looks very different even from that standpoint than it did early 2000s. And I think AI and the combination of AI and ideas, how it works together, how it fuels things and makes them better because neither AI on its own, who knows what that means, but you couple that with the right thing, use it in the right way. And it, it really changes um, the way you communicate completely. So I think relevance, simplicity, better experiences in health is um, for sure going to be the way things are, are going to go. And five years from now, it's just a matter of how we all get there. How far we go. Yeah. Ari and Frank, one bonus question. This is, after all, the MM&M studio sessions. What, for both of you, was the last song that you listened to? 
By the way, I should preface this by saying that you got a high bar to clear because uh, people have a pretty good taste in music in this business. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of something that's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> appropriate, inappropriate, you know, whatever you got, man. Yeah, my, my 20-year-old daughter seems to love uh, rap and hip-hop music uh, a lot. So many of that I cannot just quote out here. <laughs> My son, who's, who's, who's 11, he listens to tr- uh, sort of meditation and deep meditation kind of music. So, well, uh, so I, I mean, it's an eclectic mix is what I will leave you with, right? <laughs> eclectic is good. <laughs> I'd say uh, Drake and 21 Savage have an album. It's pretty good. My son... <laughs> <laughs> my son listens to it. Clean version. It's funny. We're all of us are like leaning back on what our children are listening to. You know, uh, exactly. they have the, they have the control of the uh, device now. You know, yeah, they're <laughs> really old, really fast. I thought my music was cool, but apparently, yeah, it's exactly. Not. <laughs> it's most of it that is literally forced onto you, right? Yeah. <laughs> this was terrific, Ari Frank. Thank you so much for this conversation. I always come out of these conversations with real chemistry, feeling a lot smarter. So thank you for that as well. This is fun, Larry. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Larry. For MM&M, I'm Larry Dobrow. Many thanks and be well. Be well.